Uh, Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 4. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I plan this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so, that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. This is God's word. Thank you, Toby. Let me have my uh, welcome. Good morning uh, to you. Uh, Lovely to be able to gather together and uh, continue to look at this letter of 2 Corinthians. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for what we read of your character here. You are not inconsistent. You are the one whose word is utterly trustworthy, whose promises have come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ of the Old Testament. And you guarantee that we will be there in glory with him by your Spirit's work. So please... Would we, even as we gather now, depend upon your trustworthy word and would your spirit 
So take it and drive it into our hearts that we have ever greater confidence in who you are and that we need to give our lives to live for you, for the honour of your name. Amen. Now some people are very good in terms of sort of being single-minded in their planning and ambition. So you get these sort of wonderful stories, get told of uh, some, the great and the good. So I always enjoyed Michael Heseltine and uh, the fact that as a, a, a young boy at school, he took out a back of his envelope and wrote back on the envelope, here's my plan for my life. 20, become, in 20s, become a millionaire. 30s, become an MP. 40s, become a front bench politician. And in my 50s, become prime minister. And that was his plan that he drew aged 14, apparently, for his life and didn't do badly. 20s, millionaire, tick. 30s, politician, tick. 40s, front bench politician, tick. 50s, ah. Uh, if only for Margaret Hilda Thatcher, he'd have done it all and uh, managed to fulfil all his ambitions. But not bad, not bad. It's being single-minded in his pursuit. Or I enjoyed reading this week, apparently, Alex Salmond, aged 18, was a member of the Labour Party in Scotland, uh, going out with an English girl from the East End, Debbie Horton. And apparently they were very, you know, they were inseparable as an item. And But they had a row one day, slightly driven by politics, slightly driven by their relationship, and they had a row, and Debbie Horton sort of stormed off, saying, well, if you feel that way, why don't you go and join the bloody SNP then? And he said, I will. I don't need you, and we in Scotland don't need the rest of you British. And that was it. That set him on his path. I mean, if Scotland had gone independent last week, Debbie Horton had a lot to answer for. A lover's tiff split across part of our union. It was disastrous, but it didn't. But you've got either something single-minded about that. This is now my life. This is what I'm going to give it to. Or, but for us as we gather, in a spiritual sense, there are many who somewhat impressively at a young age make resolutions. This is what I'm going to do. The great um, uh, theologian of New England, sort of Pilgrim Father time, Jonathan Edwards, famously wrote, age 19, his 70 resolutions for life. And if you read them, they're slightly intimidating, actually, for a 19-year-old to be quite so mature. Number one, resolved. They all begin resolved. That's good. Number one, resolved. I will do whatsoever I think to be most of God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure, for the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time involved, I am resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, whatever suffering may come. That's my life. Yeah, all right, all right. You know, <laughs> you to go to university. Or something. Um, resolved, resolved. But there's something impressive about that sort of single-mindedness. And actually, in life, it's hard to well, hard to achieve anything of much worth. Unless you deliberately plan for it, unless you're aiming towards something, there's a single-minded focus to many of those who achieve great things. And that's what we encounter in Paul, the Apostle Paul. If you hear here last week, we began to look at this letter. In quite a large part, the letter, um, a defense of his ministry. He's being accused of all sorts of things into the town of Corinth where he'd planted the church, where he stayed there for 18 months, a couple of years earlier. These bogus teachers, bogus apostles have come in and they've been saying, Paul is useless, he's a joke, he's feeble, he's, he just, why would you follow him yourself without 
commending yourself. This ministry is slightly awkward, isn't it? If you're accused, how do you defend yourself without commending yourself? It's a slightly awkward thing to do, but he's defending his ministry. Now, and here in this, these early chapters, uh, he's being attacked or writing to defend himself. Why? Why do you keep changing your plans, Paul? You said you'd visit, then you wouldn't, and then you did when you weren't going to. What is, you know, we can't rely on you in any sense. Is it you're deceitful in your intentions? Is it that you're fickle? You don't really know what you're doing. What sort of apostle, what sort of man of God doesn't know what he's about? Is it you don't love us? That's why you've not come. And so Paul is writing to explain, no, 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 look up. I am absolutely consistent. I'm single-minded in my objectives. Which is, I, I, my ministry is shaped by the character of God, by the purposes of God, and that always drives what I'm about. Now the details of what I may do is I always want to teach, but the big issue, the big picture of my life is I always want to teach you of the grace of God, allow you to grow in that. That's always the consistency. And so I, as we go through it, I mean, there's lots of detail. You might think, he's changed his plans, big deal. It's the 21st century, I change my mind all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I guess the question is, or the issue it throws up, what drives our decision-making? I mean, it's quite a big question, isn't it? But if someone said, what, is, what are you most single-minded in pursuing? I mean, would we know? What would the answer be? Paul is very clear. It's the character of God, the purposes of God. He wants to bestow grace, have them grow. What would it be for us? So Paul, essentially, in this little section, he says, I'm trying to be like God, or that's how I'm shaping what I'm doing. So like God, three things we'll see. He was boastful of simple sincerity. He was faithful and gracious intention. He was patient in pursuing their joy. I mean, their words really, but let's work through it to see what it means. First of all, just of his God, he was, verses 12 to 14, boastful just of his sincerity, simple sincerity. Verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Now, when we go through this letter of 2 Corinthians, it's evident that the bogus apostles, they were very, very good at boasting. It's a fairly common word that comes throughout the letter. They boast of this, they boast of that. And again, Paul's got a problem. He's trying to defend himself. How do you do that without sounding, well, a little bit proud? Well, here's how he does it in verse 12. He boasts, end of verse 12, we've done all these things, not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. I guess it's the only way you can biblically boast well. Not, or to boast of human achievements, bad. To boast what God has done, good. That's the broad picture. And it seems he writes to us, he's being accused of all sorts of things, but... Uh, and that the reason he writes to them is because he's, well, particularly when you get to chapter 7, verse 2, he's trying to trick them in some way into getting their money out of them. 
He's very clear. Verse 13, there's nothing clever about what I'm trying to do. Verse 13, we don't write to you anything you cannot read or understand. I just tell it how it is. Nothing highfalutin about my writings. And verse 14, you should boast of me. You should be delighted of me. You should give thanks to God that he used a feeble man like me to bring the gospel to you. So Paul says, look, here's the first thing that shapes my decisions in what I'm going to do. The Lord is a God who speaks the truth plainly. And so I just try and speak the truth plainly. That's what I do. That's unremarkable, isn't it? Or is it? I mean, I don't know about you in your offices, but everyone speaks tactically. Dispersions, but I, I take it in the... I wouldn't like to, you know, name it or shame it once it's cast dispersions, but I, I take it in the debate on Scottish independence. There have been, I mean, lots of statements are tactically driven. I'm not saying I know this, but I, I take it at points the leaders have thought, well... I just need to win this debate and we can sort out the details later. I take, you know, or will the EU let Scotland in? Yeah, yeah, they will. We'll just sort that out later. Yeah, 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 they will. Of course they will. That'll, that'll be fine. Um, vote no and you'll get all these extra powers. But will it go through Parliament? Yeah, of course it will. Shut up. We'll deal with that later. Yeah, it'll be fine. You know, these statements are made and are they sincere or sort of tactically driven? Well, time will tell, of course. Politicians talk tactically. Often you and I, I, I guess, will talk tactically. But Paul says, look, just speak with sincerity. That's what shapes what I do. Christian teachers just teach with sincerity for us in our relationships. In one sense, it's quite a simple point. Tell the truth. But we all slightly hedge how we do that, don't we? So it's frustrating when frustrating when someone comes to you and says, can I ask you advice? I've got this going on in my life and um, there's this and there's this and there's this. And, you know, what do you think I should do? And you, well, you sit down, you mull it over and you, to the best of your ability, you offer advice. I say, oh, thank you very much. And then a couple of weeks later, you realize, oh, hold on a minute, you only tell me half the story. Um, you just wanted to slightly play you on side, didn't you? Oh. Well, it wasn't entirely honest, was it? My advice would have been very different, as you know, had you told me everything. This is pretty frustrating, isn't it? It's a waste of time. And Paul says, well, I don't do that. I just tell it straight. I speak with sincerity. There's nothing clever. There's no subtext. You know, what did he mean in that meeting? Well, I told you what I meant. Just push down the line. Wouldn't it be great if all our dealings were like that? Paul says, look, when I speak to you, it's just with a simple sincerity. It's nothing tricky, complicated. He was boastful of simple sincerity. It's the first little thing that marks his planning. Second, a bit more time. He was faithful in his gracious intention. I don't know if we've got this. Paul, I don't know if you picked it up as it was read. Paul did change his travel plans. So I don't know if we've got it, but um, it went a bit like this. So the, the 1 Corinthians, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go uh, to Macedonia, 
and then come to Corinth to visit you guys, and then I'm going to go to Jerusalem and take them some money. And then one Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, okay, no, I'm changing my mind. I'm going to come to Corinth, and then Macedonia, then back to Corinth, then to Jerusalem with the money. And then eventually it transpires, he went to Corinth, then to Macedonia, and he didn't come back to them. Okay. That's what's going on. You would sit there and think, who cares? Who cares? Just reprogram your sat-nav and go. Um, but they clearly got very upset. Paul keeps changing his mind. Are you fickle? Or worse, are you unspiritual? I think that's the sense of it here. So verse 17, when Paul says, when I planned this, which was his first change of plans, yeah. when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? Or literally, a fleshly manner, and there's this contrast throughout the letter, flesh or spirit. Uh, it seems that the accusation against Paul is, he's very worldly. He's not very spiritual. I mean, what sort of apostle of God doesn't know what he's going to do next? Surely, if Paul was an impressive spiritual man, God just tells him what to do. Go here, Paul, then go there, Paul. But he, he's just sort of worldly, he's sort of, oh, I think I'll do this, I think I'll do that. He, you know, there's, there's no divine guidance in how Paul lives. What's the problem with him? Surely God would tell him directly what to do rather than this chopping and changing. But Paul's got no time for that. And it can lead you to a bad place. You, you've heard this, something like this, the sort of spoof obituary that goes along these lines. Headline, man dies from waiting for God to speak to him. Stanley Jackson tragically died last week, having not left his house in over 50 years. His neighbour commented, poor old Stan, he finished school, school aged 16, and then Stan said he'd wait for God to tell him what to do. The problem was he never heard from God, so he never did anything. There was one occasion in his 20s when he thought God was telling him to get a job, but he asked for another sign to confirm it, so it didn't come. Stanley leaves behind him, Nothing. Ha, 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 ha. You know, spoof nonsense. But Paul said, I've got no time for that. I just make plans. I call it the best way I can see it. And at one point, it seemed like I'd come to you, and then it seemed like I had to go there. And, but that's just, I make plans the best I can see them. I'm, God doesn't tell me which step to put in, which foot to put in front of the other, and which direction all the time. It doesn't always work like that. I just call it the best way it seems likely to me. That's how I've made plans. Now look, let me explain what I actually did. So verse 15. Because I was confident that we have a good relationship that you'd boast in me. Because I was confident, verse 15. I planned to visit you first so you might benefit twice. Literally, I planned to visit you first, before going to Macedonia, so that you might have a second grace. Oh, what's that? What's what's the second grace that they might have? And you get all sort of speculation. Oh, it could be this, that. Well, in two Corinthians, the word grace is dominant in chapters eight and nine, where Paul talks about the grace of giving, and he's encouraging them. Can you please? You've stopped raising money to give to the poor church in Jerusalem and Judea. Can you please start raising money again? So I think in verse 15, Paul is saying, okay, I was going to go to Macedonia, 
And I decided I'd come to you, first of all, raise some money and take it to Macedonia. Then I'd come back to you, raise some more money and take it to the poor churches in Jerusalem. So you had twice to experience the grace of giving. Isn't that great? He is saying to them, I was thinking of you having an opportunity to be more like Jesus. As we'll say later on in the letter, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I was going to come twice, so you could be more generous, you could be more Christ-like. That's why I changed my plans, initially he says. I'm not doing this for my sake. I'm doing it for your sake, to help you grow in your Christian disciples. That's what he's saying. And then, seems somewhat out of the blue, but verses 18 to 22, he drops this fabulously rich sort of bomb of theology. He's talking about, I was doing this, I was doing that. Anyway, enough of all that. God is extraordinary, it seems. It's sort of first glance. I don't know when it was read. You just thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, Paul's doing this and Paul's doing that. And then, golly, God is, well, what's his point? I think his point is this. God is consistent. I'm being consistent. It's as simple as that. So verse 18. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Okay, let me try and explain. Paul is saying this. In the Old Testament, God made wonderful promises that a Messiah would come and lead his people in glory. What happened? Well, you know, because I preached it to you. Jesus came and he, well, he died. A horrific death. That wasn't the plan, was it? And then, oh, but it was God's plan. Okay, it's unexpected how he's done it. We all thought, really, the Old Testament Messiah would come and lead God's people in glory and it all be very, you know, one movement. But God decided, no, it works like this. The Messiah came, died a death for sins, and in the future will lead his people to glory, to be with him in heaven forever. Now, it wasn't expected, but God's underlying plan and purpose has never changed. And somewhat bravely, Paul says, that's like me. My plan and purpose for you has never changed. I want to teach you the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you opportunities to demonstrate that to others. Oh, that may happen in unexpected ways, and my plans may appear to chop and change. But my purpose, always consistent, never changed. That is what he seems to be saying. And in the same way, verses 21 and 22, God is not just consistent in his purpose, he's consistent in his guarantee. So you have this magnificent verse 21, it's God who both made us and you stand firm in Christ. What did he do? These magnificent things. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in us as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. The Lord doesn't change his mind, is Paul's point. He'll keep his people to the end. 
even though sometimes in surprising ways. Okay, let's pull it back together. Paul is accused of being fickle, of not knowing what he's doing, of God not guiding him. And he says, no. I am consistently, faithfully pursuing grace for you and encouraging you to show that. That's not changed. Now, I think it raises an interesting question. If uh, someone came along to you and said, I observe your life and you are fickle. You are fickle. You're fickle in your friendships. You know, no one are you consistent with. You're fickle in your lifestyle. Flit, 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 flit. Uh, that, that may be true. And if it is, probably ought to do something about that. But if it's not true, and someone says you're fickle, what would your response be? No. No, I am faithful to... Now, it may appear that I chop and change what I'm about, but the thing I'm single-mindedly pursuing is... Would there be anything? Or if you thought hard about it, would it be something that you wouldn't actually be very proud of? I wonder. Just, I guess it throws up that sort of question. What are we faithful to? What are we single-minded? Okay, says Paul, this drives me. The character and purposes of God. Everything else, well, you know, I can chop and change. For you and for me, what is it that we just cling to? And says, that cannot change. Everything else, well, a little ebb and flow, and one day it'll be there. Oh, we don't worry about that. Don't worry too much about that. What is the thing we care and are single-minded about? Uh, a mum told me fairly recently, she came home uh, one evening to find her student-age son on the sofa and said, oh, it was a surprise, I, th- I thought you were going out tonight to see Jim. Yeah, I was going to go and see Jim, but... Um, uh, actually, I just decided it was going to be more relaxing to uh, have a night in watching telly. More relaxing? Get out! Get out! That's not how I raised you, just to do the thing that's most relaxing, most pleasing to you. You said you'd go and see your friend. Be true to your word. Go and see your friend. You know, go, go, go. That sort of uh, approach, sort of positive parenting uh, approach. Now, I take it the conversation didn't quite go this way, but mother could enter the room and say, oh, you've changed your mind. You're watching telly rather than going to visit your friend as you committed. You appear to be fickle, my son. What is it you're being faithful to at this moment in time? Uh, uh, well, I guess the, the, I'm, the thing that drives me is just whatever I feel like doing. Brilliant. What a life ambition. What is going to be the single most, the single-minded purpose thing that's going to drive you through your life? What I feel like doing at that moment in time? Probably not going to achieve very much, if that's the case. Realistically, are you? Or, is that too unfair? But I met with a guy this week who said, oh, yeah, I'm leaving, I'm going to leave church. Why, why is that? Well, I feel like a change. Oh, you just feel like a change. Uh, oh, there'll be some who'll find that quite hard. They'll be disappointed that you're just sort of breaking apart from their Christian family just because you fancy a change. Well, they'll get over it. No. What is driving that decision? I feel like a change. I didn't push it too much further, but it sounds to me like you're being faithful to 
I don't know. Life is more complicated. I I didn't push the conversation all that way. But, you know, there are complicated reasons behind these things. But what what is driving decision-making, I wonder? When we want to, when we're going to change our plans, so here's the thing for Paul. What is it that we cling to and say, no, I'm, I'm holding on to that. I'm single-minded in my pursuit of that and everything else not too fussed by. What is it? What is it we clench our fist around and say, that cannot go? He was faithful. Paul said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach you the gospel. I'm going to see you grow in opportunities. I'm being shaped by the character and purposes of God. Everything else, I don't care. He was faithful in gracious intention. Third last thing, he was patient. So he's boastful of simple sincerity like the Lord. He was faithful in gracious intention. He was patient, patient in pursuing their joy. Chapter 1, verse 23. I call God as my witness. It's a solemn thing I'm talking about. That it was in order to spare you that I didn't return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. It's by faith you stand firm, so I made up my mind that I wouldn't make another painful visit to you. Okay. It clearly, clearly then, what seems to have happened, Paul was going to Macedonia, changed his plans, and went to Corinth first. And that was awkward. It didn't go well. We'll see next week, chapter 2, verse 5, one individual in particular you know, had a ding-dong with Paul, and the church didn't seem to support Paul. So he came to Corinth, then went to Macedonia, and thought, you know what, I'm not going back to Corinth yet. It's just, there's, all, there's just quite a lot of heat there. I'm going to write them a letter instead. It is clearly quite a blunt letter, a painful letter uh, that he writes to them. It's caused a bit, of a bit of a stink, perhaps. So Paul is being accused of, well, you haven't visited us. You don't love us. You don't care. Perhaps of being cowardly. You won't come and face the music of this hornet's nest that's all been stirred up. But again, how does he defend himself? He says... I just didn't want to hurt you. I didn't want another fight. Not yet. I'm giving you time. Now we'll see as the letter goes on, it's not that Paul is cowardly, but when you get to the end of the letter, chapter 13, verse 2, he says, on my return to Corinth, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. I write this way now, so that when I come then, I won't have to be harsh in my use of authority. In other words, he's saying, I'm being a bit like Jesus here. When the Lord Jesus came the first time, it was to extend mercy. When he returns again, it will be to, for a final judgment and justice. But the period in time is a period of grace and mercy and an opportunity to repent. Uh, Paul is saying, look, I came and visited, and I, now is a period where you can re- I'm giving you time. I want you to respond, and I want to be reconciled. But listen, when I return then, look, we've got to sort this out. So again, he's saying, I'm trying to be Christ-like here. That's what's driving my decisions. Do I visit? Do I not visit? And alongside that, do you see what he, what he really cares about? Verse 24, it's their joy. He's not doing it for his own benefit. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your Joy. That's the joy of faith, the joy of standing firm in verse 24. But alongside that, it's a bit more interesting. He says that he's working for their joy because it's tied to his. So chapter 2, verse 2. 
If I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? If you're not joyful, I I can't get joy from anyone else. Verse 3. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you so that you would all share my joy. You ought to make me joyful and my joy ought to bring you joy. We're just tied together here. It sounds complicated, but I think it's very simple. We see it all the time in life. You buy someone a present, they're delighted. Their joy makes you happy. see it all the time. On Friday uh, evening, I took uh, my son along to his judo class. Uh, and his teacher is, is just the nicest bloke you could possibly meet. He's a policeman, does it in his spare time. If you met him, he's probably about six foot four and he's massive and he's a black belt. So, you know, you'd, it's a good job he's smiley. If he wasn't a really smiley bloke, he'd be a fairly scary bloke. But he is just the nicest guy, Mike, the teacher. And you see, when he communicates, here's how you do a, oh, Yoshi Gary or whatever the move may be, uh, I've got that really badly rock. Uh, but uh, he, he teaches them, and they get it. He says, oh, that's great, that's brilliant, you've really got that. And he's animated, and he's excited, and the kids are, oh, you know, we've really got it. And Mike's excited, so we should be excited. You know, and this is just it's the, the environment in the room. There's a lot of noise and slapping of the, of the map, but it's a very, po- you know, it's a happy place to be. If you're not fighting Mike, I think that would be unhappy. Paul is saying, in a far more profound sense, when it comes to the Christian life, when I teach you of Jesus Christ, and you respond to me personally, says Paul, when you respond by supporting Christians you've never met in Judea who are financially very poor, oh, that brings me such joy. When I see you growing to be like Christ, and my joy will bring you joy. It's sort of a joy-go-round. That's the way you ought to live. It's really wonderful how he explains it. So I I got this wrong probably in the week, but I take it to, um, you know, my young friend who says, it's time for me to change church. I could say to him, oh, look, stay. Stay out of loyalty, out of duty to others. And there's much which is true about that. But he could, of course, say, well, I could stay out of duty, but I don't want to. And I'll just get resentful. But I, I think... Paul's response would be, no, stay, because you'll miss out if you go, because your joy is tied to people you've known for the last few years. And when they see you commit and stay to love them and serve them, oh, that'll, you know, that'll lift them, they'll be delighted, and you'll be delighted. And it's just the way the Christian life works. Your joy is tied to other people. We don't live this life on our own. Paul insists that the greatest of joy comes in seeing others joyfully growing in faith. It's very normal. I had a letter just in the week. Someone saying, I sat next to at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, hearing a newly converted young man praying that he would lead other men to Christ. It was the most exciting thing I'd known in a long time. Of course it is. It's just wonderful. You take great joy in the joy of others, seeing them grow. It's very normal. But you don't get that if you live your life on your own, on the fringes of a church family. Here then, here is Paul's justification for changing plans. Why have you changed all your plans, Paul? It's not that I'm deceitful, it's not that I'm fickle, it's not that I don't love you, but I'm single-minded in my commitment to see you grow. I'm shaped by the character of God, the purpose of God. 
I am single-minded in wanting to teach you grace and see you grow in that. I have a single-minded commitment to your joy that only comes in fellowship with me and others. But that's what I cling to. And whether I go to Macedonia or Manchester or Liverpool or Hull, who cares? My prior commitment is to these things. So I guess the question for you and me as you come to something like this is, what are your plans? I take it like many, um, summer, summer holidays is normally the longest holiday we get. Uh, I know, not for all, but um, often the longest. And when you're on a long holiday, that is the time, isn't it, often where we'll sit down and have a, I don't know what you call it, a state of the nation. You know, in your marriage, in your family, or, you know, if you're single, you sit down and think, right, what are we doing? What am I doing? What needs to change? Am I happy with my trajectory? What has got to change in the year ahead? You know, summer's often a time for that. We sat down over the summer. What needs to change? Well, kids' bedtime gets later. We don't talk as much anymore. We need to, you know, be more deliberate in going out and having time, you know, just chatting. Okay. You know, I thought, well, I need to, you know, get to know people better. Some of the men in the locality. I've joined a, a local football team. It's a six-a-side team. The average age is 47. There's a lot of bad planning got into that one. Cannot see us lasting a season, but we'll see. But you, you sit down and think, okay, think, you know, what am I going to change? What? But what matters? What are the things you think? Th- these are the things that we really care about and are single-minded in pursuing. Let's get clear on them, and that'll work out the details of what it is we're going to do. I mean, they are slightly intimidating. Jonathan Edwards, age 19. Resolution 22, resolved. To endeavour to obtain for myself as much happiness in the world to come as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigour, vehemence I'm capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way I can possibly think of. I mean, it's quite a strong resolution, isn't it? If you can do that all the time, what... What are you resolved? This is what shapes me. It could be a Hesseltine. I resolve to be Prime Minister. Alex Salmon, I resolve to get back that girl who dumped me age 18 by splitting apart the union, if that's true. What is the thing that draws... Or like Paul, I am single-minded in pursuing the glory of God. I want to be like him. I want to serve his purposes. That will drive me, shape me. Everything else, detail. But I work out the detail because I'm clear on that in my mind. And he would say, and of course when I do that, I'm being like God. Because as we've, well, as it's read here, as we've sung in what we've sung this morning, the living God is single-minded in his determination to bless his people. Oh, he won't let you go. Oh, your life may take unexpected turns, but it is for your good. He is single-minded. That's why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said, just be a bit like him. Follow your master. Pursue the glory of God with your life. Let's pray together. A great God and Father, at first glance, travel plans from the first century seem far from us. But you've recorded this, so you 
we can see the priorities that drove a man such as Paul. And we pray that you would so work in us to move us to be more like him as he has the heart of the living God. To give ourselves to growing, to be more like him, to give ourselves to live lives shaped by your purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, many details that we'll need to work out. But would we be single-minded in our pursuit of serving you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.